Well, good morning. Take your uh, Bible, if you would, and open it to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll pick up where we left off last week. Give me a drink here as we get started. We've been in Colossians here for a few weeks now, and uh, I, I, I was laughing again this week with Aaron, and I, I made a joke this morning in our our men's group at 7.30, I told you guys when we started this a few weeks ago that my goal was to do Colossians in 10 series, or 10 sermons, do the whole series in 10 sermons, and I'm just going to plumb tell you we're going to be lucky to do it in 20. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, you get looking at stuff and then you see in the original language, well, it's broken here and this is a change of thought, and, and you guys know I'm not one who usually, you know, lacks for words, and it can get pretty lengthy pretty quick, and you know, I, I, there's tremendous value in slowing down, even in taking smaller chunks. This morning, you see, we're going to look at four verses. I'll give you a preview of next week. We're going to do two. Uh, we started our study with two verses. And, um, you know, but I believe that's okay, because I believe that there is tremendous value in just a study of God's Word, verse by verse. You know, I was super excited last August to be able to preach through uh, vision and value and some of these things that we've been working with IBL to establish. But I cannot tell you how much I enjoy the fact that at the first of the year, we for the no- a number of months now will just open our Bible to the book of Colossians. And uh, so I'm excited about that. And I want to pick up this morning where we left off. And we've made mention over the last few weeks, Paul's opening words to the Colossians are rich in theology They center on the truth that in Christ, they have been united to God. That's the foundation of what Paul is going to write for the believers at the church in Colossae. What I'm going to write to you is, is for your instruction, because very early on, he says, I'm writing to the believers in Colossae. He says, to those who are in Christ at Colossae. And so he's writing instruction to those who believe in Christ, to those who are united with God by faith. And the relationship, or excuse me, the, uh, the, no, the relationship that the Colossians have with God and the, the fruit that it's producing has caused a man named Epaphras that we looked at last week in verse 7, verse 6 and 7, to come to Paul, who's in prison in Rome, and give him a good report about what's happening in Colossae. And this good report stems from, wait for it, the fact that they're in relationship with Christ. And so Paul, because of this report, he rejoices with the Colossians. And he praises God for the work that God is doing in the life of the Colossian believers. And that's what we looked at last week. Paul, after verse 2, starting in verse 3, Paul starts this prayer And last week we saw he was praising God for all that God was doing in the life of the Colossian believers. And this morning, we're going to come, we're going to see hopefully that this conclusion, one of the conclusions that Paul draws or the opinion that Paul has is not that the Colossians have arrived. Yeah, we got a good report. And yeah, you're living out your faith in Christ and you're living in union with him. But but that doesn't mean that you've made it. And it's interesting that as we, that first song we sang and we started looking into our call to worship this morning in Romans 8, didn't have anything to do with arriving here and everything to do with arriving there. 
And so Paul, is, as he's writing here, he's going to start praying for the Colossians instead of praising God for what he's done in the Colossians. And it all centers around what they are to be doing now and here. Right? His desire is not just that they would hold steady, that they would remain firm, that they would be where they are. His desire is that they would continue to mature in Christ. And I want to stress quickly, if you've been here for any amount of time at all, you've heard me say, neutrality is a myth. In other words, one of the foundational reasons we know that Paul's desire for the Colossians is not that they would just remain steady, because there's no such thing as just remaining steady. When we talk about our relationship to Christ being in union with him, we're either maturing in that union or we are not. You don't just tread water. You don't remain afloat. You don't just stay the same. You either grow in maturity throughout the Christian life or you do not. And so Paul shifts gears. Now, God, I want to pray for these things for the Colossian believers so that they will keep growing. We've had a good report, and that's great. But we don't want to look back. Paul's not saying this. This is an example, an illustration. We don't want to look back 20 years from now and say, yeah, that was it. 20 years ago, God, what you did in the Colossians was the height of what happened in Colossae in the name of Christ. He's saying, God, I pray that you will continue to work in the Colossian believers, that they would grow, that they would mature, so that there's not a heyday. And, of course, we know historically there is, right? Um, 2,000 years later, obviously things have changed. But Paul's desire is that they would continue to grow. And because he desires that they would continue to grow, he's going to address some specific areas throughout this letter. And in our prayer this morning, we see he's going to pray that God would do some certain things in their lives that would enable them, that would allow them, that would propel them to continue to grow in Christ. In short, we could say this morning, Paul shifts his focus from praising God to asking God. Or maybe if we want to alliterate, we could say from praising God to petitioning God asking on behalf of the Colossian believers. It really is simple, too. He just wants them to keep growing. And we could boil the prayer that he prays down to that. And we could say, he just wants them to keep growing, so by way of the preservation of God's word and our ability to have it, it is absolutely a logical conclusion to say that the desire of God is for us to continue to grow, too. Let's pray. Amen. But that's not how Paul prays, is it? Paul prays specifically. Paul prays for certain things, recognizing these are helpful to Christian maturity. So I'm going to pray that God will do these things. And this is what Paul prays. That they would grow, mature, and in doing so, they would glorify God with their lives. So I want to turn our attention to our text, beginning in verse 9. Is the same prayer we started looking at last week. Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your word this morning. Thankful for prayers such as this prayer by Paul for the Colossian believers. Where we see that it is a desire of yours for your people to grow in maturity. To be more and more like Jesus and to to live out the fruit of the gospel. Father, help us this morning as we begin to unpack your word to have ears to hear. One of the things we'll see today, God, is that Paul is far more concerned with the actions of the believers in Colossae than the knowledge of the believers. He doesn't separate them. Knowledge provokes action. But if we say we have knowledge that is not backed up by action, there's a disconnect. And so Paul prays that his They would be filled with your knowledge or the knowledge of your will, God, that it would spur them to action. And so may we hear this prayer of Paul this morning, and God, may we be challenged. May we be challenged not just to know a little more, not just to have a better understanding than we did before we came, but God, may we be challenged today to have what we know inform what we do and who we are. Father, work in our hearts and in our lives today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul goes from praying to God, praising God, to praying for the Colossians. And simply put, our groundbreaking, earth-shattering first point is Paul praying on behalf of the Colossians. This is what he's doing. He's petitioning. He's, he's asking. So he, he's been praying. He's still praying. The gears of his praying are changing. There's a difference between simply praying for someone and asking for something on behalf of someone. Paul makes it clear that he is asking God, not just in a general sense, but for something specific for these believers. And he prays that they would be, first of all, filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Simply put, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to have a complete or full understanding. That doesn't mean that you know everything. That doesn't mean that you have everything figured out. But we must understand if there's any shot at having any understanding or any knowledge of the will of God, we must have regular contact with the Word of God. So often... We hear phrases and people talk about, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to make light of anybody who's ever said this. Of course, that's not my goal, but people talk about praying for God's will. I want to find God's will. I want to know what God has for me in this life, and I'm praying that God would show me his will. But you know what the problem sometimes is? When we pray for God's will, we do it like this. Sitting still. God, I'm going to sit right here on my couch And I'm going to pray that you would miraculously, supernaturally reveal your will to me. Can he do that? Yes, absolutely. But you know what happens uh, more regularly? As I go and as I do and I pray, God, show me your will, 
I, I figure out what God's will for my life is, right? Like, there's kind of a joke that we could, we could make. It's not really a joke, but it kind of is a joke. You know, a lot of people figure out that helping in the nursery isn't their will, isn't God's will for their lives by helping in the nursery. It's, it's really kind of a, a faulty conclusion to say, I've never done this, but I know that's not what God's will for me would be. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Maybe God does desire that you work in the nursery. Maybe God does desire that you help with uh, uh, kids in general. Maybe God's desire is that you would help stack chairs. Maybe 10 years from now, you're going to be a deacon in Dale Bible Church, and you figure it out because 10 years prior to 10 years from now, you were willing to stack chairs downstairs in preparation for something that was happening at the church. You're moving. You're going. You're seeking God's will. But it's not just a desire to know something. It's a desire to do something. And so we combine this idea of knowing God's will with knowing God's word. So we live our lives under the guidance of being informed by God's word and under the influence of being led by God's spirit. You're not led by God's spirit sitting still, right? And so Paul is praying that they would continue to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they would continue to do, that they would live in subjection to the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that reveals what God has for us in our lives, As we go and as we do and as we pray, we learn. It's the Holy Spirit that impresses these things upon our lives. And part of God's will is the practical how-to, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And where does the how-to come from? Well, it comes from God, and it comes from God's Word. And so Paul is praying, asking that the, the Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And last week, the first part of his prayer, he was talking all about the gospel, the the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, right? And he was talking about this being proclaimed and this going out. What's happening is they're having a knowledge and an understanding of the word of God that's then forming how they live. And so Paul, in a lot of ways, is praying that they would be filled by continuing to do what they're doing, not becoming complacent, all right? There's a difference between complacency and, and what's the word I want to use here? They're apathy. Okay, I can be content in, in allowing God to grow me as I'm living in subjection to his will and as I'm knowing his, his word and I'm, and I'm living in subjection to these truths that I'm believing. I can do that without being apathetic. I can do that without being complacent. And so that's Paul's praying is they're filled with this knowledge. It's that they're going and they're doing and they're building on what they know, not sitting idle and being complacent. But he prays also not just for knowledge of God's will, but for spiritual wisdom and understanding. James tells us, we started that in our, uh, our growth groups, but James tells us what in chapter one, that he who lacks wisdom should do what? Ask for it. And God gives it. Right? And so Paul's praying. He's asking on behalf of the Colossians, yeah, you can pray for someone. Okay, I can pray for you to have wisdom, but until you desire to have wisdom, you probably aren't going to have wisdom. But nonetheless, we can pray for individuals, and he's praying that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this simply means that those who have knowledge of the will of God know how to apply it. You know what it means to live out your faith in Christ. 
It's not always some big grand gesture, right, and this super magnificent thing. Sometimes it's just faithfully living out what you know to be true, what you have had revealed to you by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Applying what you know. This is the wisdom part. The quest for the believer is not simply to know something. And that's the disconnect, I think, lots of times in churches like ours. We come to church and we hear, we learn something, we know more than we did before we came. We might even read our Bible throughout the week and we, when we do that, we know more than we did before we read it. But there's a disconnect because what we know never compels us to action. And Paul's desire is that what the Colossians know would compel them to action. It's not just knowing, it's making right decisions and conducting certain actions in light of what you know. The understanding part, that's the wisdom part. The understanding part is to have the ability to assess and apply knowledge. Understanding says, okay, I'm looking at these circumstances. I understand what's happening here. I understand what happens if we do this or we do that or we make this choice or we make that choice. And wisdom then is knowing which one to do. Okay? And Paul's praying that this would be what would be evident in the, continue to be evident in the Colossian believers' lives. If the Colossians claimed to know and understand by their actions, then their actions must suggest that they know and understand. And your actions will go way further for demonstrating what you actually know, understand, and believe than your words. I can say anything. But what I do gives credence to what I say. Or what I don't do gives credence to what I say. And so the, the reality of the Christian life, Paul's desire for the Colossians is never just that they would know, but that they would know how to process, interpret what they know, and make right decisions. It's not enough. It's clear here that in Paul's eyes, it is not enough for the Colossians to just say they have knowledge of the will of God. So he wants them to take the knowledge of the will of God and apply spiritual wisdom and understanding and live out God's will. And so Paul expresses his desire next. Clearly, the desire of Paul for the Colossians is that as God fills them with the knowledge of his will, that they would continue to grow. That's, it's really simple, right? He prays for them and he prays that they would grow. We are masters at complicating the Word of God. And sometimes it's really pretty simple. This is what Paul prays for, or Paul prays for him, and this is what Paul is praying for. A life that is marked by continued growth is going to manifest certain things. Okay? A life, professing believer in Christ, their life, if it is a continual growth in Christ-likeness, it will show certain things. A life that is growing, as we've alluded to, is not complacent. It's not careless. In fact, I would submit that it's really the exact opposite of that. A life that is growing in Christ is the very first thing, it, it qualifies as the very first thing is what Paul says here, the desire, or his desire for the Colossians is to do with their knowledge of God's will. What does he say? He says, he prays that they would be uh, increase in the knowledge of God's will, that they would understand how to live it out. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
Paul is clear. God, I want you to do this in their life so that they can live a life for your glory. That's pleasing to you. It's not about the Colossians. It's about God and his glory. And Paul prays that God would work in such a way. He would continue to work and grow, build on what he's working or how he's worked already so that they could walk in a manner that's worthy. So that their lives could be pleasing to God. This is the main pursuit of Paul for the Colossians and the practical aim of his petition. That they would walk worthy of the Lord. Again, I want to reference the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says that a genuine knowledge of Christ reveals itself in transformed character. A genuine knowledge of God reveals itself in transformed character. Not in certain tasks, not in certain services, like is in jobs or tasks, right? Not in certain people, not in certain ways, Genuine knowledge of Christ reveals itself in transformed character. If you know Christ today, your life should look different than it did when you didn't know him. And that's not my idea. That's the word of God. It's called sanctification. When a person is saved, salvation, the process of sanctification, growth or changing begins. And this is the evidence of a genuine knowledge of Christ. The more you have an understanding and knowledge of Christ, the more your character changes. It's never, a pla- it's never like a, a plateau in the sense that we just need to get here. And that's kind of what Paul is writing, encouraging the Colossians against by way of his prayer. Don't just feel like you've made it. Don't just feel like you're here. All right, great job. You reached level two, Colossians. Just stay there. No, the more they know, the more their character is to be transformed. The more they understand, the more knowledge they have of God's will, the more they live in obedience to God's word, the more they exercise spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding, the more their character looks like Jesus, the more their life is worthy of Christ. Simple truth this morning is really not profound, and yet it's profound. One cannot know God and not be changed. You understand that this morning? It's easy to say you know Christ. It's easy to say you're a believer in Jesus. It's a totally another thing to know God and to be changed by it. And to be changed by it is this this manifestation that comes out in a changed character. Right? Word of God tells us, let he who steals, steal no more. Right? Let he who is slothful, work. There's a change. Something takes place. This change is to Christ-likeness. And I'm going to set the bar really high this morning. Because you know how many things are worthy of the standard of God? One, Christ-likeness. And that is what we're called to. 
not just the Colossians, but you and I as well. God's standard is Christ-likeness. There is no lower standard than that. There is no higher standard than that. And Paul says, the knowledge of God transforms your character to be more like Christ. Use the phrase worthy, worthy of the calling. Worthy means equal weight. That's the idea of the word worthy. It's a measurement, right? So for the believer, the call of Paul is that their lives and standards would be equal to the Lord's standards. And what's that standard? Christ-likeness or perfection. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we can't attain perfection here. But we live our lives growing to be more like Christ because he is perfect. And his righteousness has been accounted to us when we believe in him by faith. But that's what we long for. That's what we pursue. A life that is equal with the standards of God. And we might say, we talk about Christ-likeness. Another way to put this standard is what Peter reminds his readers originally written in the book of Leviticus. The Lord God says, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. You know that today? The standard that God has for anyone who names the name of, well, really he has it for those even if they don't name the name of Christ. But if you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you profess to know Jesus as your Savior, God's desire for your life is holiness. And nothing short of that. This is the direct exhortation that we have. Be holy because God is holy. And why? Why is the one who claims to be in faith with Christ, why is the one who claims to be a believer, why is a transformed life desirable? Why, why should we want our lives transformed and, and look more like Christ? Because Paul says, we want you in verse 9, uh, excuse me, verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does a life that's worthy of the Lord do? It pleases him. When you live a life worthy of the Lord, it's fully pleasing to God. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear when I stand before Jesus. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is the goal of the Christian life. To be pleasing to Christ. To look like Christ, to be like Christ, to act like Christ. Even the Apostle Paul, his whole goal in life was to please Christ in every area of his own life. It's interesting, isn't it? He's not praying that, that God would do this for the Colossians, but I'm good. I've arrived. Even Paul's desire in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he, he is backing up what he's praying for the Colossians with his, his own life. As he's writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, one of my favorite passages, he says this. So whether we're home or away, he's actually talking about whether we're dead or alive. He says, we make it our aim to please him. My whole goal in life, Paul says, is to be pleasing to God. That's his goal in life. So when he prays for the Colossians, we can say that he's literally praying for partners. He's praying for those who name the name of Jesus just as he names the name of Jesus and that they desire, that their greatest desire would be to be pleasing to God. 
and a life that is pleasing to God results in certain things. Because sometimes we might say, well, what does it look like to have a life that is pleasing to God? How do I think I'm doing pretty good, right? Like I'm not running amok and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I don't cuss, date, and chew, or, or I don't cuss, chew, and whatever, and date girls that do. You guys know the saying. I don't do those things, so I'm okay, right? I'm doing okay. But is that really what, it, is that really what a life that's pleasing to God is reduced to? Is that really what it looks like? It's don't cuss, don't chew, and don't date girls that do. I got it. Took me a second. But is that really what it is? I'm going to tell you quickly, no. Because the standard we just said a minute ago, it's not my standard. It's not our standard. We don't make the standard. God does. And I mind you, his standard is holiness, Christ-likeness. And so if we're going to say, all right, we want to live a life that's pleasing to God. We want to pursue Christ-likeness. We want to pursue holiness. As Paul is praying this for the Colossian believers, we say, what does a life that's pleasing to God look like? Well, as he prays, he talks about them again being filled, right? Um, Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. A life that's pleasing to God bears fruit and is growing. Earlier in chapter 1, we looked at last week, Paul uses similar language in referencing growth or fruit. In verse 6, he's referring to the gospel. This is what we looked at last week. I mind you, it says, verse 6, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So in, earlier in our letter, Paul's talking about the fruitfulness of the gospel, but now the subject is not the gospel. The subject is the believer in the gospel, that they would be bearing fruit, that their lives would continue to grow because the good report that he received from Epaphras has showed that they are growing. And so Paul prays that they would continue to grow and that they would bear fruit in every good work. I cannot overstate this this morning. For Paul, for God, the believer is not called just to know things, but to live a life that produces things that are consistent with what they say they know. Okay? The Christian life is way more about action than speech. And Paul says, if your life's going to be pleasing to the Lord, it must bear fruit. Also, it's a life that's strengthened with all power, with the power of God. And I want to, of course, have to add a caveat. This does not mean that Paul is praying that the Colossians will be victorious over all things and in all times and in every circumstance. They'll never be undone and they have unlimited power at their disposal. That's not what Paul is saying at all. And in fact, we don't have to wonder what Paul means as he prays that God would strengthen the believers because he actually tells us exactly why he wants them to be strengthened. He says, God strengthened them with all power for all endurance and patience. And beyond that, so that in their endurance and patience, they can have joy. The endurance here, as Paul writes, is translated as perseverance in James chapter 1, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith, excuse me, it's translated steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations probably do say perseverance. 
The ESV, it's steadfastness. This idea of steadfastness and endurance literally means to hold up underneath the weight of. It's the idea of being pressed upon from all sides and facing pressure and strain and stress. Typically, it's not physical. Okay? But Paul says, if they're strengthened with the power of God, as which somebody said, you can not only endure, not only can you absorb being pressed in from all sides, he says, you can do it with joy. Again, there's our reference back to James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Paul doesn't want the believers in Colossae to just survive under the cultural pressure that's weighing down on them. His desire is not that they would just get through it. He literally prays that they would be patient in their endurance and that they would have joy. If we reference 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, we see that patience is often associated with gentleness or like a calm sweetness. Love is patient. Practically, endurance is not succumbing under suffering, and patience is a self-restraint that does not retaliate in haste. So a a life in a a high-pressure situation, underneath weight and scrutiny that is a suffering that is outside of our cause and concern, or out of our cause and control, when these are the experiences that we are facing in life. Paul is praying that we would, that we, when I say we, I mean the Colossians. There's application, obviously. But he's praying that the Colossians, okay, would not succumb under the weight of the suffering and that while they're suffering, they would not retaliate hastily. They wouldn't lash out at the false teachers in Colossae. They wouldn't lash out at the people who are complicating their lives because they won't do the things that the the outside cultural pressures say they should be doing. The only way you, me, or anyone else patiently endures in suffering and retaliates not hastily but in patience is if we're maturing in Christ. You've heard me say before, the preparation for suffering is not the suffering. It's the season of no suffering. It's the maturation in Christ's likeness prior to the suffering that equips us to endure patiently with joy in the midst. And Paul prays this for the Colossian believers. But he says, as you endure as you've been growing, and as you endure, and as you're patient, as you live joyfully, he says in verse 12, I want you to do one more thing. I want you to give thanks. God, help the Colossians as they grow in the knowledge of your will, as they gain spiritual wisdom and understanding, as they endure under the weight and the stress and the pressures of the culture around them. God, help them to do that with joy and to respond rightly and to deal with things in a way that are pleasing to you because they're maturing in you. And God, help them to be thankful. 
Sometimes it almost seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? Paul's writing a letter because the Colossians are suffering, not because of anything of their own doing, but because the culture around them doesn't like that they're trying to follow Jesus. Paul says, God, I want you to help them to be thankful, to give thanks to you while they suffer, while they patiently endure God, help them to live their lives with a heart of thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, we know Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That you would thank God. That your disposition is controlled more by knowing who you are in Christ and growing in your knowledge and understanding of Him than you are your circumstances. If you are defined by your circumstances and your overall attention, energy, and efforts go to your circumstances, they will define you and chances are they will overcome you and you will not be thankful. Thankfulness is a foundational disposition of the heart that has been redeemed by God and reconciled to him through faith in Christ. One of the scariest realities in the world that we live in is I am not promised the next breath. Scarier than that for me is that my next breath would be accompanied by some kind of tragedy or catastrophe. But Paul says even in those moments, even in those times, you can have a thankful heart. Because God in his grace and in his mercy and in his love for sinful man gave Christ Jesus. When everything around you crumbles, when nothing in your life makes sense, when nothing is within your control, if you know Christ as your Savior, you can and should be thankful to God. I'm not saying be thankful for the circumstances. We'll talk about this in just a second. But there's a disposition of thankfulness. And right here when Paul references that they would be a people who give thanks to the Father in verse 12, this is the first of four times in a very short letter that Paul references the Colossians being thankful people and having thankful hearts to God. So I want to finish this morning. I, I want to be real. I mean, I always try to be real. I'm very black and white. You guys know this. But I want to be real this morning and ask a question. Does the desires that Paul has for the Colossian believers sound anything like the desires that you have for your own life? Do you pray for the knowledge of God's will? Do you seek spiritual wisdom and understanding? Are you concerned with holiness and Christ-likeness? Like, let's be real. Are we going through the motions? It's Sunday. Let's go to church. Or do we understand that God has given us the church to glorify him, to edify one another, to evangelize the world? And I want to be pleasing to him. I'm not going to church to meet a quota. I'm not reading my Bible to meet a quota. I'm not giving to the church to meet a quota. 
I go to church, I read my Bible, and I sacrificially give out of a generous heart. We saw that last week because it's pleasing to God, and I want to be pleasing to God with my life. Our churches are full of people who have zero desire to be pleasing to the Lord. And then we look around and we say, why is our world so broken? Why does sin run rampant in our churches? How do we get to the place where the church says, well, that's okay, and that's okay, and that's okay? It's because our churches are made up of people who do not care about holiness. They do not care about pleasing the Lord. Do you care this morning about pleasing the Lord? Before I asked you that question, did that thought ever cross your mind? It's crossed it now because I've asked the question. Do your desires look at all For your own life, like Paul's desires for the church in Colossae. I would submit to you this morning that the answer to those series of questions is one more question. Are you a thankful person? Tony Evans uncovered this illustration. Tony Evans says this about being thankful. God says to give thanks in everything. That doesn't mean you need to give thanks for everything. You don't need to give thanks for that bad day or for the bad relationship or being being passed over at work for financial hardship. Whatever it is, you are not to give thanks for the difficulties, but rather in the difficulties. That is a very important distinction and one that I think we often miss. Giving thanks in everything shows a heart of faith that God is bigger than the difficulties and that he can use them if you approach him with the right heart and spirit for your good and his glory, end quote. The person who gives thanks in everything is the person who has a growing understanding of the knowledge of the will of God. It's the person who desires to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. Can you today earnestly say that in all circumstances that you pray as Paul is praying here for the Colossians? I know I don't, but I ought to. I ought to pray for myself and for others just as Paul prays. I ought to always have the desire to grow, to be like Christ. And so should you. But you're the only one this morning here that knows, apart from God, the desires of your heart. And no matter what those desires are, let today be the day that you either A, continue to pray for further knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of his will. Or maybe today is the day that you pray for a desire for his will and a knowledge of it at all. Maybe for the very first time. Whatever it may be, this morning... This prayer from Paul for the Colossians will never go wrong. Seeking the holiness of Christ and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Being a thankful person. This is what Paul prays for for the Colossians, for the Colossians in Colossae. And may that be our hearts today as well. May we be thankful people who are motivated by a pursuit of Christ-likeness that changes not only our lives and the lives around us, but the lives of those in the world we live in. Let's pray. Father, the standard that you have set, we have zero hope or chance of reaching on our own. 
The standard is perfection. In God, there's only one who was perfect. And in your grace and in your mercy, God, that perfect one laid down his life that you might take it up again and that by faith in that truth, God, we could be made right with you. We're not perfect in this life. We're not in and of ourselves holy in this life. But God, we can pursue you. We can desire to know you. We can desire to be like you. And God, this morning, only you and each, every, and each individual here really knows the desires of our hearts. God, reveal our desires to us. Maybe some of our desires are very good and godly. Maybe some of our desires are very far from you. Maybe today is the first time any of us have ever thought about even the concept of being pleasing to you. Stir hearts today, God, for your glory. Do mighty things, as we've said, that this world might be changed for your glory. Help your people to know you, God, to desire holiness, Christ-likeness. Help us especially, God, not just to know things, but to be people who actively live out what we say we know. Work in mighty ways, God, that we might give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.